On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode 32 of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. I'm excited about this episode. Can you tell? Yeah, I can. What's on your eyes? It's black eye. You got makeup on your eyes. Not just over your eyes, all around It's all squiggly, eyes. above and below. Yes. That's the original way Alice did the, uh, the eyes. We're talking about Alice Cooper, in case you haven't figured out, on this week's episode of the podcast. When he did the makeup in the earth, you look on, um, especially on the killer pictures, you look, it's like little lines that are drawn down from the the black around the eye with little lines, like eyelashes, I guess. It was later that he would form up the the slice thing with the with with the top to the bottom yeah. and many variations of the eye makeup of Alice Cooper. We could probably do a photo collage on, on social media about that. That would be really cool. It is the imbalanced history of rock and roll, so I guess it's perfect we're talking about Alice. And it's brought to you by our friends at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro, serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. Well, a lot of people, Marcus, don't know that there's more than just a guy named Alice. Some people just know him from his solo work. Absolutely. I know as a little kid, I thought his he was Alice Cooper. I had no idea that he was... Another guy with a different name. That's right. Well, he was born as Vince Fernier. Um, French. Ha, ha, ha. From Detroit. Ha, ha, so French Canadian. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and like his other bandmates, uh, he moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where he met the guys that would not only change his life, it would change their lives and rock and roll history. Our lives. Yeah, all of us, especially yeah, yep. me. More, You have no idea how much Alice Cooper was part of my teen life. My parents were very successful in keeping him out of my young life, sadly. My folks, not so much. And we'll get into that. But a lot of people don't realize that there was a band called Alice Cooper, and it was Vince Fernier who adopted the name and the persona of Alice, uh, Glenn Buxton, who uh, Lake Glenn Buxton, who played lead guitar. Michael Bruce, who did a lot of the uh, songwriting stuff, had a lot of the great riffs, played rhythm guitar and keyboards. Dennis Dunaway was on bass guitar, but really had so much more than just being the bass player to do with Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. And Neil Smith, the drummer, who also had interconnected ties. His sister ended up being married to Dennis Dunaway. And they all came together at this crazy house they had in Phoenix. And it's really outlined well in Dennis's uh, book. you got to check it out if you haven't seen it and you're an Alice Cooper fan. Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs, My Adventures in the Alice Cooper Group by Dennis Dunaway. It's a long title, but find it. Just find Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs. And chances are on Amazon or wherever you buy your books, it'll pop up. And it's a great story. 
story because it talks about how these guys came together, uh, how they they got to know each other and form what became a, a Hall of Fame band, really. An incredible band. And the story is even uh, equally as good as the band itself in some ways because of what they did, how they did it, and how they got to where they are or where they were at the time. They had been called a number of things before officially taking on the Alice Cooper moniker at a gig, actually, in California on Michael Bruce's 20th birthday uh, in 1968. So that's when Alice Cooper became officially the deal. No more spiders or any of the other names they'd gone under. And, you know, it's funny with the level of shock stuff that they do when they were in high school, when they were in Arizona doing their thing at their very first live performance, they had a coffin on stage. It I didn't know It was that. all at the beginning. What? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the big interview show on Axis TV with Dan Rather, he talked about all of that in his early days. And he grew up in a very liberal Christian upbringing as his father was a preacher who loved rock and roll. Well, I didn't know that part of it. I, I knew that there was a story about a preacher, but I didn't realize Pa was in it. Pa was a preacher. They were wow. very religious, but his dad oh my always God, had can you rock imagine? and roll. But his dad was always a rock and roller, too, so he got it. Yeah, and there's a connection, I guess you could say, uh, psychotically from Jerry Lee Lewis to Alice Cooper, the crazy part of rock and roll coming out. And the rebellious side of the religious aspect and taking it to the full level with the makeup and the uh, coffin on stage. Well, he's Alice is an interesting character in and of himself, but let's talk a little bit more about the other guys um, because a lot of the things that start in the Alice Cooper band take on a whole unhealthy excess when he goes solo a few years later. Now, when they were breaking out, trying to get discovered, and uh, they I think they probably had done the first album by then, they were in uh, the movie Diary of a Mad Housewife. It was the original band. Did you know that? No. 1970. What if somebody drops a lighted cigarette in here? This old damn place is a fire trap. Fire trap? And there were other movies, too. Uh, they appeared in Sextet alongside Mae West in 78. Uh, of course, we know Alice more famously for Wayne's World. Sorry to bother you, but we had to come and tell you how much we really enjoyed the show, didn't we, Garth? Oh, thanks. We're not mental or anything, so don't be afraid. So, do you come to Milwaukee often? Well, I'm a regular visitor here. But Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. The French missionaries and explorers were coming here as early as the late 1600s to trade with the Native Americans. In fact, isn't Milwaukee an Indian name? Yes, Pete, it is. Actually, it's pronounced Miliwake, which is Algonquin for the good land. I was not aware of that. Well, we got to get going. No, no, no. Stick around. Hang out with us. Cool. Yeah, we'll stay and hang around with yous. With Alice Cooper. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're not worthy! 
And in Dark Shadows, he did the performance thing in Dark Shadows. But uh, even back to the Alice Cooper band days, he was doing movie stuff. And even getting away with playing Freddy Krueger's foster father, Edward Underwood, in one of those Freddy Krueger movies. So he was bound for that kind of stardom and that kind of fame, I think. Um, they call him the father of shock rock. But I don't know. He he just, he, they did shock. And, and, you know, he had a lot of help along the, along the way there. Uh, Glenn Buxton, when you think about Alice Cooper uh, and all the riffs that uh, that fill the, 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 the original band canon, as they call it. He, he had moved to Phoenix like the other guys, and then they all met um, at, at Cortez High School. He became the hot gun on guitar, played in a band called the Earwigs. Um, it, that was with Dennis Dunaway and Vince at the time and a, a couple other guys. And eventually it all came around. You know, these guys all got to know each other and uh, formed a band they actually called the Spiders, and then they called themselves the Naz. Hmm. But then they found out that there was another Naz in Philadelphia with Todd Rundgren, and, and they said, we got to come up with something else. And that's where it led to them going to Alice Cooper. Now, Michael Bruce, he's more of a Midwest guy. His family moved to Arizona from Kansas, and all kinds of uh, mixed ancestry in his family, Cherokee, Scottish, Irish, English, uh, all kinds of people, creating Michael Owen Bruce, and uh, he's an interesting character in all this because he just keeps laying down nasty riffs for Glenn Buxton to play over. And the chemistry there is pretty incredible when you think about some of the riffs that are in the Alice Cooper Band album catalog. It's incredible. Chemistry is such an important part of the sound, and it's what one of the many things that elevated their sound to the next level. Those guys played really well together. Now, Dennis Dunaway, who ends up being the bass player in Alice Cooper, he comes from the other direction out of Oregon and moves to Phoenix and gets in with these guys. And, you know, I think in those days, you're talking about mid-60s, a bunch of freakish guys probably looked at each other and said, yep, this is my bunch. These are the guys I'm going to war with, right? Yep. It's funny. They probably got beaten up by the jocks and all the girls they hooked up with because they were in the band. We totally talked about that before that with Springsteen, right? It could yep. definitely be the case out there. Totally. In Sony, Just like you know? that beach party. Yeah. So once they're all in this band and they figured out that it's Alice Cooper, they all figure they'll pool resources and they move into a house together. And in Dennis's book, a lot of the stories that are in there, you really get a full picture of what life in that house was like. And along the way, um, um, Neil's sister and Dennis get together, Cindy, and she starts designing clothes for the guys. All these crazy outfits you see in the early pictures and even later, um, that's all Cindy designs. She, she's doing that. Guys are making songs or uh, rehearsing and all this stuff's going on in this crazy house. Uh, her brother was Neil Smith. Um, yeah, still is, I guess. And he is, uh, you know, known as the drummer in the classic lineup. Um, a graduate in 65. He went to Camelback, not Cortez. And they managed to find each other and hook up there in the Phoenix scene as it was back there in the mid-60s. I wonder what Phoenix was like back then because it was a lot smaller and it yeah. was more desert. I mean, Phoenix now it is didn't really sprawl. spread out. Yeah, it didn't sprawl, sprawl like so. it did now. And, the place... and there aren't a lot of high buildings, or at least there, and I know back then there were hardly any tall buildings. The in part of town that I spent time in Phoenix going to see bands when I've been there is probably the area where they were or where they were playing a lot of it's an old neighborhood low lot, lot like single and double uh level buildings so okay. but uh so they find their way out of Phoenix and they say this is it we're going to LA we're going to make this happen right 1967 everybody's moving to California 
Can you imagine this busload of freaks going to California with the hippies? <laughs> but they probably fit in. They had to fit in. They had to. Well, it's they LA. found their they found the uh, the 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 lid for their pot, so to speak. Ironically, because they th- this happened in the hometown of the Doors, Venice, California. Uh, they're doing a gig there. And literally, the the crowd is leaving as they're playing. And afterwards, you can't imagine that you're thinking anything good's going to come out of this gig if you're in the band, right? Yeah. But they meet Shep Gordon, who would become their manager for all the years and stay with Alice through all the years, too. And he saw that they could turn that negative energy into a, a more uh, productive thing, a little more like focus and energy. And so he got involved. He arranged an audition for the band with Frank Zappa, who had just gotten Warner Brothers to give him his own label called Straight Records. And um, Which is hilarious that Frank Zappa would have a label called Straight Records. Did you discover Alice Cooper? Is that the truth? Well, sort of. They came over to... Uh, I used to have a record company, and they came over to my house to... Uh, some friends told me they were coming over to audition. And I was upstairs sleeping, and I had this basement in this log cabin in, in uh, Laurel Canyon. It was real big, and we used to practice in there. So they'd come in and set up their equipment while I was still asleep, and I woke up to it one day. Went down, and there they were, playing their little hearts out. Why did you think he had the potential to be a rock star? Well, I didn't make up my mind right then. I waited until I saw him play in concert a few times, and uh, they were opening act for us several times. And invariably, when they would play, thousands of people would leave the room, and I knew they had something. <laughs> I'm not sure I follow that. Leave the room and you knew yeah, they had they, something? They had a, well, people had a very violent response to it. And if you look at the people who are responding that way, and then you look at the response and you listen to what's going on, you can make a, an assumption that something is going on. So Shep gets it set up. You're going to go to Frank Zappa's house. And I think we've seen pictures of that house. It's a pretty amazing spot there. And he, they show up at Frank's house for this meeting at 7 o'clock in the morning. It had to freak him out. But it woke him up. It did. It, it woke if, him up. Of course. He was a musician. He wasn't up at 7 a.m. Most likely he was going to bed at 6 a.m. We were talking before and you said you didn't. He the word you'd gotten is that Frank really didn't get him and that's why he liked them or yeah, something he said, like that. Yeah, he said that he said that. Part of why he signed them is because he's like, I don't get you. He was blown away by the fact that they thought 7 a.m. was the meeting time and showed up at 7 a.m. ready to go and do their thing and whatever they had to to impress Frank Zappa to get a record deal. And that was part of it, too. That's amazing. It's called balls. They had balls. But those were accidental balls because they were were misunderstood balls, I should say. And they were displayed properly because Cindy Smith had drawn the uh, costumes up. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) But so I guess he liked the fact that they were kind of outcasts in the L.A. scene in their earliest days there. And uh, he signs them on. Ended up being only seven albums when you think about uh, what happened in... What's that? Five years, really? What happened there was pretty damn incredible as far as the uh, ability to get your bass under you. Now, for me, 1971, I'm 18s all over the radio, and that's where I jump on as a young Alice Cooper fan. It, it, it would take a little while before I discovered that there were two previous albums, Easy Action and Pretties for You from 1969 and 1970, but it would take a long time. For me to acquire, I found Easy Action in a cutout bin, but it would take me years to get a copy of Pretties for You and complete my Alice Cooper band collection. But that's where I jump in. I jump in like a lot of kids in America, and when things started to take off for them, 
It's on May 18, and then that Christmas I get Love It to Death and Killer under the Christmas tree. Well, you can imagine what I was listening to nonstop for weeks on end into 1972. Oh, absolutely. Why wouldn't you be? Mom had just painted the upstairs bedrooms and was pretty pissed off when she walked in and found not only was Alice Cooper hanging from a noose, the poster hanging on the wall was hanging on her freshly painted wall. And not long after that, there was a Bowie poster next to it and other posters would get into the Beatles and whatnot. But she wasn't real thrilled to see Killer on the wall. All this talk about fresh painted walls and hanging posters is making me thirsty, man. Want to go get some water? How about we have a brew with our sponsors here on the podcast? And as always, the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is sponsored by our friends at Crooked Eye Brewing, located at 13 East Montgomery Avenue in Hatboro. Great brews, great people, and fun times. Next time you want a True Craft Brewery experience, stop by for a pint and make it Crooked Eye. And look, there's more to the fun at Crooked Eye than just the brews, although they are stellar. You check out their website, crookedeyebrewery.com. You see the full list of music events and fun scheduled for each month. So check them out at crookedeyebrewery.com or on Facebook. So you can stop in, meet Paul and Paul, the brothers-in-law who started Crooked Eye Brewing in their kitchen. Yeah. I mean, meet the Crooked Eye crew who make it fun every night, and yep. you know you're going to make some new friends, too. And you get to meet Jeff Mulherin. He's there a lot. He's the master brewer, and uh, he is working on some really cool stuff. Their tasty brews include the trademark Crooked IPA, which is back and tasting better than ever, right there at their expanded brewing facility in Hapro. That's where they make it all. You will feel like family the moment you walk through the door. Serving nightly in the heart of Hatboro, Crooked Eye has the cure for what ails you since 2014. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Um, that gets us into 72, school's out hits, and man, it just explodes. And then they come back in 73 with Billion Dollar Babies, the original album. You flip open the jacket, and it's like a billfold, a green leather billfold. And there's a, I still have my Billion Dollar Bill stuck inside there. And then they come back again in 73 with Muscle of Love. It's a disappointment to the label, a disappointment creatively. They don't have any big hits. I love the shit out of it. And still, uh, I've got it upstairs uh, in the wall. You'll see it, the original 
a cardboard folding. You know how like you can get a single album mm-hmm. shipped to you in a cardboard uh, shipper? Yeah. Well, that's what Muscle of Love came in. Whoa. It was pretty cool, actually. That's really yeah. cool. But then Troubled Times and the Alice Cooper band breaks up. Why? Do you know why? Like, did Dunaway say so in his book when you read it? When you boil it all down, I think it's a classic case of 70s era going solo. A new concept, a new album, a new direction. Doesn't quite meet with what you guys and we've been doing here these last few years. It's been a blast. But I want to go do the Welcome to My Nightmare album and then the tour, which, by the way, was my first concert. Not my first time seeing Alice. My very first concert, Alice Cooper on the Welcome to My Nightmare tour. What a way to be broken in. In his book, though, Dunaway, you asked about Dunaway, and in his book he says some not great things, but I think it was his honest view of what had happened. It makes sense that Alice Cooper did that 70s thing going solo, but at the same time it didn't seem to make sense because of what he had with this band. I think it took time for that to really register that maybe it hadn't been the best idea. And then I think after it happened, they drifted and it wasn't for a long time that it was even discussed. Uh, The best they could do is a couple uh, off the cuff kind of uh, appearances together last Mm -hmm. minute. In some cases, I think if they had done it when Buxton was alive, it probably would have had a better chance of happening uh, full blown. But he died way too soon uh, back in the nineties, disappeared and they couldn't find him and, they could find him he so he went on one of those like sort of walkabouts and disappeared something like that we'll have to look that up for the update absolutely so allison barks upon this solo career a young ray coob goes and sees him at the spectrum in philly in 75 uh follows that with uh alice cooper goes to hell lace and whiskey the alice cooper show from the inside flush the fashion He's got all these albums coming out, like one, two a year. That is a torrid pace to put out albums and tour on. You're basically in the studio and then touring in between. And that's one of the things that happens. you got to realize, he had uh, a real drinking problem. Huge. And that was the biggest problem. Now, this goes back to the Billion Dollar Babies tour when it was so heavy duty that they got Budweiser to sponsor their plane. There were Budweiser logos all over their plane. So they were one of the first bands to do that kind of shit. And and, and but that showed the level to of excess that it, it it was at. And it didn't wane when he went solo and he got to a, a point where it didn't matter what the preacher was telling him. His his innards were telling him you got to do something and you got to quit drinking, which he did. I'm not sure exactly where here in the uh, in the discography that that occurs, but I know he gets himself clean, gets himself sober, and stays sober, and that golf is part of his path for moving forward without addiction. alcohol. Well, it's totally an addiction, addiction that won't kill but you. It's not a bad it. It's expensive no. as hell. It'll kill your He's wallet. He's got it. It'll kill your wallet, and he does have it. So when did he become part of the Hollywood vampires? Because That was back in the days. Was, in was that in the 60s? Late in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. That's when that all okay, happened. Okay, cool. And then and he set started the tone recording. For the drinking. Yeah, yeah. No kidding, because I figured maybe he was a vampire around 71 when Love It to Death or Killer came out, and that's it was when he through started there. rolling. That went but on through it, there. But uh, Wow. 
Yeah. I mean, it started some point in the in that around 70 point, but it, it continued all the way through, and I think, until uh, he stopped drinking and then some of the other guys started drinking or started dropping dead. Yep. So. And he and his wife were separated from about 76 to 82 as well, and that's when he put out all those solo albums. So it seems like he got himself lost in his booze and his music. And he, he would go on in the 80s. He'd do stuff like Dada, but he'd also then come back with Constrictor, which was considered a better album. Raise Your Fist and Yell. And then, this is around the time I met Alice, uh, on the Trash Record, um, he was on uh, the John DeBella's Morning Zoo, was live uh, from Atlantic City, and Alice was a guest. And after the show, I got to go sit with a tape recorder and uh, interview Alice, one of my heroes, my first concert. And that was a lot of fun. From there, I got to know him a little bit. I would see him at shows and stuff uh, on the trash tour. There's a picture I'll post it on uh, social media of me and uh, my, my metal producer because Alice, Alice could only get played on metal radio back in 1989. That's so weird. Uh, yeah, and then I would see him again through the years uh, and as he continued with Trash and St- Hey Stupid and The Last Temptation. And uh, there's another picture, which is great. It's my son, Eric, meeting Alice for the first time. And uh, that's a whole other story for another time, I think, though, on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. So he continues to do stuff and, and, and he did a Welcome to My Nightmare 2 uh, like a follow-up. I don't know how you can follow up one of the greatest theatrical rock albums of all time. Uh, but in, in the last couple of years, he's done, he did an album called Paranormal and, and then a Breadcrumbs EP. And he's had some great people in his bands. I mean, his current band has Ryan Roxy, uh, Chuck Garrick, Tommy Henriksen, Glenn Sobel, and Nita Strauss. She's amazing. She is. She's an amazing guitar player. And Ryan Roxy knows a lot of people in this area. I don't know exactly what his ties to the area are. but Family and friends. Family and friends. Yeah. But yeah, I know I've seen pictures of him all in the area. And mm-hmm. he gets excited to see all his friends from the area when he comes back to play. Ringo could form an all-star band out of the former members of Alice Cooper's band, okay? Seriously? Dick Wagner, Kane Roberts, Kip Winger, Paul Taylor, Ken Mary, John McCurry, Hugh McDonald on bass, Eric Scott on bass on one period of time, and David Rosenberg. These guys are the uh, an Orianti on guitars yeah. too. These 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 people here combined with the guys and gals who are in his band now, mm-hmm. they're they could they could be a band unto themselves. Kip Winger. Yeah. The fact that I had no idea Kane Kip Roberts. Winger played played with them. Yeah, I think he played played bass at one point, yeah. right? Bass and keyboards. Yeah. And did backing vocals. But some of these guys, like now, like Ryan and Chuck and those guys, they've been with him since the Wayne's World days, and um, that was that was really a great thing to see. It's kind of uh, one of those things that galvanizes you as an icon when you get into that kind of a scene. He took on a role in Jesus Christ Superstar Live in concert on NBC TV. It was one of those live performance events and uh, got a nomination for a Grammy for the soundtrack on that. I mean, little things like that, they all add up to create the picture about Alice Cooper, the public icon. But let me tell you, um, he and I talked about it, and it was worse when he was drinking, but he would be backstage just hanging out, and he'd just be Alice. But when he would put on the, the top hat and take the razor cane and put, you know, get his get himself ready to go out, it was almost like when a football player has a shadow fall over them when they go onto the field, and that it would be like another person altogether. And he told me about this, and I was just blown away 
And a lot of this conversation isn't recorded because it happened. Um, he was going to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game at a Phillies game. So we were all hanging out, a bunch of us from the uh, radio station and from uh, Friday Morning Quarterback were hanging out, waiting in the stadium club for the rain to, you know, to, to stop so they could get the game going and all that. Well, the rain never stopped. So we sat there and had dinner. And we're sitting there to having this great conversation about all these kind of things, about Alice and the, and the and the red curtain dropping and all that kind of stuff. And Jeopardy's on. Alex does the, you know, I'll take such and such for 400 and this and that and the other thing. And Alice is sitting next to me, giving all the answers faster than the contestants. And then we all start getting in on it, trying to see if we could beat Alice. And nobody could beat him. He was that good at Jeopardy. Damn. I know it's the strangest thing, but totally it was strange. so fucking funny. We had the best time, and we were talking about a lot of that kind of stuff. And we, at that point, we'd met a few times and had done a few interviews. And I just think he's one of the coolest guys ever, one of the nicest guys. Mm-hmm. Just continues to perform. His his daughter performs with him, and I think that's a hoot. She does a great job. As some night, she's the one who cuts Dad's head off. You know what I mean? That yeah. kind of stuff. She really, and he continues to perform at a level that even at his age, his age, he's getting up there now. He still wants to do it. So old black eyes, he gets out there and he do it. And he, he still can. Well. He do it well. He's also been very smart about how he's toured. He, he brought a great band from the area with him on his last tour, Hailstorm, opening up. Yeah, to, and they've really been doing good. And, and that helped them a lot. Yeah, and it helped him a lot. And it's nice that he's able to be smart about which bands he brings with him to be able to appeal to a younger audience and to be able to continue that tradition of rock and roll moving forward. He is mindful of all that. Very smart man. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because some of these guys who party their balls off the way he did end up getting hosed by managers and lawyers it does and happen. all of that. And that never and, happened in his case. And I don't think I don't it think happened it, in no. his case, but he's always been very fiscally smart and very business smart and yeah, well, aware remember of the he, industry. He opened up a restaurant in Phoenix called Alice Cooperstown. Yeah. And I, I thought that was brilliant marketing, and it, it closed in the last few years. And he thinks of things like that. And some of that, I bet you, comes up when he's out on the golf course. Uh, one of these right. days we're going and we're going to get with Alice and we're going to go out and play I'll play nine up. or 18, whatever he has time for. But okay. I would love to do that. It's one of those things on my bucket list. Play golf with Alice Cooper. If we do it in Phoenix, my brother will set us up because he takes care of a lot of golf courses. Well, I'm learning There's things about foursome. you all the time. There's our there foursome. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Alice, are you listening? It's I got Alice our next Cooper. foursome. <laughs> it's Alice Cooper on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We talked about the band, and we could probably spend another 45 minutes just digging in deeper to the band. And maybe we should do that. Maybe we should see if we can get a hold of Dennis and get him to come in and talk about his book at some point on an episode to dig in deeper to the band aspect. I mean, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as they should be. Uh, And Alice has had an amazing solo career and an amazing life. Uh, Him and his wife, you mentioned his wife, uh, Cheryl. Yeah. And they're so close that uh, they actually got themselves into some kind of controversy recently where they oh, said they yeah. he's, he he alluded to something that they have a jokingly have a death pact if yeah. I die you go too you yeah. know that kind of and thing and everybody freaked out about the murder suicide thing and all oh, that and people yeah. went bonkers they did they it really did lit. I remember that and he had to reframe it like you know it's come kinda, on you guys it's me it's Alice Cooper I'm not really going to kill her and then kill myself or she kills herself I'm not really going to kill my relax yeah. you know and uh, but you know it, it's just so funny because it's the reactive culture that we have now and in the, the old Alice Cooper wouldn't have even had to or thought to give an, a, any kind of a qualification of that. Yeah. 
but it's his way of saying how close they are here at this stage in their life and how much he loves her. And, like, and you know, you think when you think back to the early 70s, the last thing you're thinking of is, oh, lovable 70-plus Alice Cooper. You know, you just didn't know what was going to happen to these guys. And, um, and the, most of them are still alive, the guys in the band, and, and, and seem to be doing well. I would love to talk to them about how the sound of the band developed and, oh. and the fact that they chose to do the makeup and all that theatrical stuff, which is totally 100% opposite of what they were doing musically yeah. it was a contrast that totally blew them up and it worked yeah, it did and it would be fun to hear about them like in the motown documentary we saw they played some of the audio from the conversations of the war rooms right. i would love to hear those war room meetings read and how dennis they dunaway's out. book all right snakes guillotines and electric chairs i'm telling you a lot of those stories are in there okay. so we should both reread that book i'll reread it you read it and then um, then, we'll, then we'll see if dennis wants to come on and we weren't doing the podcast before and i was still trying to get an interview with him we'll get it yeah we'll get we'll it. get it dennis if you're listening come on call we're us. coming for you <laughs> For an interview, that is. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. Number what? 32. Holy cow. Of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, sponsored by Crooked Eye Brewery in Hatboro, Pennsylvania, with the cure for what ails you since 2014. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. I'm just loving Alice Cooper. This episode has been so much fun. This was a lot of fun. I guess we're going to have to do more Alice down the road. Definitely. Here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.